This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Stick around for more at the end of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to the Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, Professor of uh, Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here with my co-host, Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. And we have a repeat guest today. Some might say that that is the triumph of hope over experience. Uh, whether he's the one hoping or us, I leave to your own experiment. <laughs> but it's Michael Morales. Uh, Michael is Professor of Biblical Studies at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in South Carolina. He's also an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. And he's the author of a new book, Exodus Old and New, A Biblical Theology of Redemption, which has recently been published by InterVarsity Press. Great to have you with us, Michael. Carl, Todd, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I want to start by asking you, not on the book, but another question. Uh, and obviously, this is just between the three of us. Nobody else is listening in. This is not a very popular podcast. Uh, uh, what do you think of your new boss? Give us, the, give us the straight scoop on John Master. We want some dirt. We need to know. On your we need new to know. Boss. What's he like to work with? Is he as bad as everybody says he is? <laughs> <laughs> Are the rumors true? <laughs> Jonathan Master has been a, a great blessing to the seminary, as I know you'd expect. Um, it's, he's just a delight to get to know, and we're thankful already for his leadership. Uh, yeah, it's just been a great joy to get to know him. That's fantastic. You do know that the church where I used to pastor was a couple uh, who wouldn't have their children baptized because they'd been persuaded of the truth of dispensationalism by John Master some years ago before he became a Presbyterian. <laughs> I like to yeah. throw that out there just to annoy him once in a while. Yeah. Like, like a lot of good Presbyterians, John Master used to be a, a good dispensationalist. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, he, in fact, he comes from a dispensational line. His father is a, quite a distinguished uh, uh, advocate of, of dispensationalism. But yeah. we won't hold that against John. He's, <laughs> he's repented and uh, come over to the, uh, uh, the true faith. <laughs> Michael, the new book, uh, can you tell us something of the background, why you chose to write on Exodus? We know that you're a, an Old Testament guy. You did a, a wonderful book on Leviticus a year or two ago. Uh, what attracted you to writing a book on Exodus? Well, really, I got invited to do so by the series editor, Ben Glad, and um, you know, there's a lot of different themes. They all sort of make my mouth water, but I was so thankful that he asked me specifically about the Exodus motif. Just given some of the work that I'd done already, I was already starting to zoom in on that motif as a, really a comprehensive way to grasp the unity of Scripture. And so it was just a, a delight in God's providence to, to be invited and then to roll up the sleeves and and dig into there's just so much good material on that topic one thing that i'll i'll, I'll tell people uh, this this 
new series, um, and Dr. Morales's uh, uh, volume is just the second volume in this in this series that that IVP is is publishing. Um, is intended, um, it, it seems, uh, to kind of bridge the gap between you know Sunday school and seminary. If, if you're if you know a, a, a layperson can pick up these volumes and really benefit, you do not have to have a seminary degree. Um, to, to, to read these books and, and really glean a lot from them. And so, you know, as I've been reading the book and really enjoying it, um, I, I, I've got all these people's faces popping in my head of people I want to get this book to. I want to get it in the hands of our teachers. I want to get it in the hands of members of our session who, you know, most of them uh, are, are, are actively teaching. It's really, really well done. And one of the things, I, you know, I've got a whole list of questions and there's no way we're going to be able to get to all of them. But just kind of talk us through a little bit about how the, how, how Exodus um, functions paradigmatically. How, how is it a paradigm um, uh, going forward from the actual historical event of the Exodus? How does it also function, you know, as a paradigm for for salvation as as redemptive history moves on from there? I think because it is the great um, epic of salvation in the Old Testament. Uh, it naturally becomes a paradigm and then providentially so by, by God's spirit. But I guess to step back a little bit to explain the Exodus motif really is comprehensive. So it, it deals not only with God leading Israel out of Egypt through Moses, but taking them to Sinai, entering covenant with them, which would be sort of the second phase of that paradigm model. And then thirdly, even bringing them into the land of promise. So really the, the Exodus is... Uh, you can say by the, from the end of Genesis to the, um, basically to the end of Kings. And Israel, as we know, ends up back in exile. Uh, the northern kingdom has been scattered by Assyria, uh, the southern kingdom by Babylon. But through the prophets, even before declaring the exile, uh, God had promised that what he once did through Moses, he would do again. And so really, as the canon grows, we, we have this, a second great group of this grouping of literature, the prophets that are calling us to expect a second Exodus. And so all of the, the sub motifs of, of the Exodus um, tradition kick in. So there needs to be a new Passover, a new redemption. There needs to be a new Moses. Um, and God is continually saying uh, this new Exodus is going to be greater than the first Exodus. You know, then they will all know the Lord and, um, It'll be so great that no one will talk about the former Exodus anymore. A second time, God says to Isaiah, he'll lift his hand up. And so it's prophesied, and, and that's really, even in the, the Hebrew ordering of, of the canon, which ends with the writings that I prefer that order, but nevertheless, the canon closes with that expectation, and then we get the New Testament declaring that the, the new Exodus that was prophesied has taken place. And so uh, we have the paradigm, the historical Exodus out of Egypt, and we have the prophesied, the expectation of the second Exodus. And then with the New Testament, we have the accomplished new Exodus through Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a sort of pastoral question here, Michael? As I was looking at the book, a lot of my own work, I'm not a biblical scholar at all. A lot of my own work is, is reflecting on the contemporary state of the church in American culture. Uh, and one of the striking things, one of the striking differences between Britain and America or Europe and America has been the, the explicit secularization of Europe has, has been much more longstanding and took place much more slowly uh, 
it looked different in different countries. England looks different to France. But the church had, has had a long time to accustom itself to the idea of being a pilgrim people. Uh, there's no sense of, of, of ownership of the nation or the culture or anything that you might have had in England, say, 120, 130 years ago. That's long gone. Uh, America, it's happened much faster. And it seems to me that one of the, the most disturbing things for a lot of, of, of ordinary American Christians is they feel they've lost control of the country. They feel it no longer belongs to them. They're being alien aliens in, in a strange land, to, to use Archbishop Chaput's, uh, the title of his book, uh, Strangers in a Strange Land, is, is difficult for them. As I was looking at your book, I was thinking, you know, Exodus, that's a great book, pastorally, for, for this. It's sort of going beyond the book a bit, but could you perhaps flesh out as a, as a man who's a minister and a pastor how well how you would sort of strategize, maybe preaching from or applying the book of Exodus to Christians today to to help them really understand the times in which they live? Yeah, everything you're saying, Carl, really resonated with me. Oddly enough, as I was working on one of the early chapters, I have a chapter in Genesis, just covering the life of Abraham and trying to show that even in advance of the Exodus, God, Yahweh is the God of the Exodus and he was shaping Abraham's life. And precisely what, what you're saying, again, is what really stood out for me and was a lesson to me that I would, I think pastorally would be beneficial uh, to the church. You know, God delivered Abraham out of Exodus. So we have that Exodus formula in Genesis 15, I'm Yahweh who brought you out of Ur, which parallels what he's going to tell the Israelites later in, in uh, Exodus 20. I'm Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. But what is odd, he brings Abraham out of exile, speaking of exile from Yahweh's uh, you know, relationship with him. And yet as soon as he experiences that Exodus, Abraham immediately becomes an exile within the world. And um, so he's he is living Hebrews 11. He's living in the land, but it, he doesn't have any ownership of it. And I tried to develop uh, just that a little bit near the end of that chapter on Abraham, because that is what we experience. We're either exiled from God in a relationship with God, or we're exiled from the world, and there really is no way to have both. And so it's ironic, it's odd, but as soon as God delivers us um, out of exile from His presence, we find ourselves in the world, but, but not of it. And, and, and that's a theme that I, I pick up again in John's gospel. And so, if anything, our, our current climate, politically, culturally, it, it should be good for the church. It's a reminder that this isn't our home, that we are awaiting a renovated heavens and earth, and that we are strangers and aliens, and um, that we're here for a mission that God would use us and spreading his word that others might be drawn out of exile, that the nations would flow to Jerusalem and the, the Jewish people as well. One of the things you do that I thought was really helpful um, early on is, is you don't just start in Exodus and move forward, but you really lay the foundation for why particularly the first 11 chapters of Genesis is so important to our understanding um, of, of Exodus. And again, when we say Exodus, we're talking not only about historical event, but, but Exodus as the paradigm for salvation. I wonder if you just unpack for a moment um, why those first 11 chapters of Genesis are so important for us to understand these themes that you unpack throughout the book? Well, the, the whole story of, of Israel's mission uh, is set within that context. So 
you know, if you look at the bookends, Genesis 3 and Genesis 11, we, we have exiles. Uh, Adam and the woman are exiled from the presence of God in Eden. We, we see that continuing as Cain then is pushed further eastward. And then we get this culminating story where essentially the world is divided up into nations scattered from the presence of God. And it's within that context that God calls Abraham himself out of exile. And he promises in Genesis 12, 3, that through his seed, Israel fulfilled in Jesus Christ, um, he'll bring blessing back to the families of the earth. And so what I found fascinating, again, is just in God's providential wisdom, we have the nations in exile needing to have an excess deliverance. So what does he do with the people he's created? He puts them in exile so that the beginning of Exodus Israel is in the same plight as the nations. So God is showing what, what I'm doing through the church is what I want to do for the nations. So he's, he's giving them the answer to their desperate plight um, by accomplishing this feat, this exodus on, on the stage of world history. One of my favorite bits of the book, Michael, was the, when you talk about the sacrifices, I think it's on page 92 and following, Israel's liturgy, a threefold movement to God's abode. You know, again, not a biblical scholar. I, I, I have a basic grasp of you know, sacrifice, expiate sins, etc. But you gave me a much richer understanding of you know, the liturgical action of sacrifice at that point. I wonder if you could just lay that out in brief compass for the listeners. I thought it was one of the most beautiful sections of, of the book. Well, um, if you're referring to just the threefold movement, yeah. uh, so the basic liturgy of Israel, we see this in uh, Leviticus 9 and 10, the inaugural uh, worship ceremony at the tabernacle. Uh, moves from purification offering to whole burnt offering to peace offering. And although there's a lot of overlap, we really get to the theology of those sacrifices by teasing out what makes them stand apart. And clearly with the purification offerings, it's the blood rite, uh, which represents purification. And then we, we move to the whole burnt offering. This is the only offering where the entire animal is consumed on the altar apart from its skin and represents consecration unto God. Uh, the Hebrew term is actually ascension offering, and we see this beautiful picture of, of propitiation as, as the fragrant uh, smoke ascends to the presence of God. In fact, th that word for burning is not the regular word for burning in Hebrew. It literally is from the root for, for incense. It's this fragrant offering of a life fully consecrated to God. And then from there, we move on to the peace offering, which much like our Lord's Supper uh, represents uh, fellowship with God and the people of God. So this would be the one time, and there are a variety of, of peace offerings, like Thanksgiving offerings, etc. But this is the one time where the offerer got actually a share of the meat and was invited to eat this uh, holy meal. And you can invite uh, other relatives, friends, Levites. And so we see this beautiful movement in their liturgy from blood being shed for the purification of God's people and we move from there to consecration. And all these steps are, of course, so important theologically, spiritually. We cannot give ourselves to God unless we've been blood-bought and purified. But once we have, we, we're solicited to give all of our lives to God. And this is what pleases Him. And, of course, fulfilled in Christ, but then in union with Christ, it's, it's again solicited for us to live these lives. And that leaves, leads us to have greater and greater fellowship with God encompassed in, in that fellowship meal. And so, in many ways, the liturgy follows a similar outline in a lot of our Reformed churches. And when we make that correlation into how Christ really meets each step of the way for us 
and, and how we enter God's heavenly presence in him, then you know, I agree. It's, it's a very beautiful uh, and inspiring uh, movement. Yeah, Carl, you, you asked one of the questions I was going to ask. I, I, I marked that section all up because it was, it was so good for me in part, not only as a Christian, but also as a pastor who tries to communicate to people that how we worship matters and that it goes well back into our history. And I was once again reminded by that section of how God is preparing in Exodus. He's preparing his people to, to, to worship and that's such an essential theme in Exodus, isn't it? The, the, how God is giving really his people for the first time a, a liturgy um, that, that's going to inform how we worship as Christians as well. Um, and, and that was just helpful for me, once again, both as a Christian and as, and as, um, and as a pastor. One of the things you do in your, your excellent book on um, Leviticus is, is, you know, kind of you, you help to, to, to show how the, the, the central theme of Leviticus is how are sinners going to be okay with a holy God? How do we have access to a holy God? What is kind of the, the, the axis around which Exodus revolves? What, what's the central theme there in the book of Exodus the, and, you know, the, the, the event of the Exodus? How would you boil it down the way you do, for instance, for the book of Leviticus? Well, I think that's actually very similar. Mm -hmm. um, and it's we, going back to the foundation of creation, that, that God will dwell in fellowship and communion with a holy people. And given sin and alienation from God, uh, it takes an exodus deliverance. And that's why it's so important to emphasize you know, that even the deliverance out of Egypt, just the first part of that paradigm, Exodus 1 through 15, the exodus proper, was not just merely a political event. It was spiritual, it was theological, mm -hmm. and everything is involved in bringing um, people back to God. So the covenant, the shedding of blood, uh, the worship cultus, all of these things. And so in many ways, in that chapter uh, on the cult of Israel in the Exodus book is where I'm kind of showing my hand that I'm basically saying the same thing as I am in the Leviticus book. <laughs> I mean, it's, that threefold movement it shouldn't surprise us. Yeah. We see through the historical exodus. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And oh, and and while I, I always have to mention this when we have an author of a book who has either illustrations or pictures. I always say every book ought to have either if you're writing a history book or a biography, it ought to have photographs. If you're doing biblical theology, you ought to have something visual. And man, I was so glad when I said, okay, you know, once again. <laughs> You had the forethought and the wisdom to have uh, uh, illustrations. I, I say that because genuinely I'm, I'm helped uh, by those. Because as I'm reading along, then I run across one of these really helpful charts or, or illustrations you have. And just like in, on the book that, that you did on Leviticus, it, it just kind of helps to crystallize. Um, You'll be wanting scratch and sniff books <laughs> for the sacrifices and the incense. No, I keep I keep saying this when we have guys like Michael on. I keep saying this in hopes that Carl one day, whose books I dearly love, but that one day he too will include uh, uh, some some. Well, some I can break it on. Crossway have actually commissioned Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the graphic novel. So, <laughs> now, I did hear a rumor from one of Carl's students that he has drawn a stick figure of Jesus on the whiteboard before. <laughs> I, I think in a discussion over whether or not that was um, 
authorized by the word of God. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't remember anybody bowing down and worshipping it, so I think we're more or less okay <laughs> on that point. So, so, so Carl, uh, Carl would say that a stick figure is not a, a second commandment violation. I preach to that effect. I have a sermon out there on, on about the, uh, the images of Jesus where I basically no. say, stick man. Not a problem to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Michael, exactly. one my sort of final question is, could you just briefly tie together for the listeners how you tie Exodus to resurrection? Yeah, that's a nice punch at the end where you more yeah. or less, I think you say something to the effect of, hey, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is resurrected because guess what? His God is the God of the Exodus. Mm. And I thought that was a really nice apologetic line in some ways. Yeah. Having the resurrection in my own mind from the very beginning I mean, that was one of the other reasons I was really excited about this topic. I, I tried to work up to it. And so, for example, in the Exodus out of Egypt, uh, those early chapters, I tried to show how even poetically, theologically, being delivered out of Egypt, Egypt was like a spiritual Sheol, and God refers to Israel as his firstborn son, that we can read that story as God delivering his firstborn son from the grip of death. Uh, but then a lot of the work that's been done in the New Testament, so Luke, for example, in, in the um, uh, Transfiguration, you know, Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah, and he specifically tells us there about his exodus. And clearly that's his exodus out of the tomb. And, uh, you know, that's the great question when we ask, how did Jesus accomplish the new exodus? And we have the new Passover, we get that correlation really well with the Lord's Supper, but often we forget the glory of the new Exodus. It's literally, you know, the tomb opening and a man who was dead for three days emerging as a new creation. And then how the church, by faith, spiritual union with Christ, we're all partake of that third day resurrection. And, and our spiritual resurrection, a foretaste of our physical resurrection, that the consummate Exodus that we see in, in uh, the end of the book of Revelation. And so, uh, to me, that the final chapter on resurrection, I actually was, was writing it as a, a dear friend. Uh, we thought that he was on the verge of death, and it was part of my own pastoral counseling to him, but also uh, preaching to myself. And as you mentioned, the climate of life today, um, you know, we've had a variety of tragedies in, in our home church. Um, this reminder that really all of God's amen and yes in Christ are ultimately fulfilled through the resurrection is such a needed reminder for us. We're going to have things where our children get sick, suffer, perhaps die. Um, we're going to have political strife uh, in this world. We're going to have diseases, all of these things. But that's the glory of, of the, the Easter message, the resurrection message is we're already united to the one who's conquered sin and death. He is already before the face of God and his humanity experiencing that beatific vision. And so whatever hardship we have, it's a reminder that we've already died with Christ. What our baptism says, our life is hidden with him. And so I think there's a lot of pastoral application to this Exodus theme. Um, all of our shortcomings, our failures, everything that humbles us is another reminder that we need to keep dying. You know, Paul says, better by far be absent from the body. And, and so um, all roads, I think, as I mentioned in the book, something like all roads lead to the resurrection. I mean, that really, that really is the bright light um, that I pray would be a blessing to those who read it at the end of the book. Yeah, and, and it is. And uh, I would just tell our listeners that um, this is a, a, a book well worth your time uh, to read. 
Again, it's entitled Exodus Old and New, A Biblical Theology of Redemption. And please hear me, if, if you're um, a Christian layperson, this is not a big, scary book that, that's intended for uh, academics alone. This is an accessible book uh, for Christians. Um, I will tell you, if you're a pastor, if you start reading this, you're going to want to start preaching through Exodus immediately. Um, it's really, really rich. And, and for the layperson, I just cannot tell you um, how helped you will be by this. You will see once again that the Old Testament, and in this case specifically Exodus, this is Christian scripture with themes that are very relevant. I was so glad that Carl asked his question about, you know, things that, that we're experiencing now in the theme of Exodus and what Dr. Morales just now uh, brought up as well. Again, the theme of, of, of exile, which is where we find ourselves, but, but we're exiles going towards resurrection. And so there's, there's, there's great moments of devotion and doxology as you read along in this book, and I just can't recommend it enough. And so, Michael Morales, thank you so much uh, for joining us again. I'm, I'm, I, I've now added you to the list of people that if you, if you write it, I'm going to read it automatically. And thanks so much again for, for the work you put into giving us another terrific book. Well, thank you, Todd. Thank you, Carl. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, folks, um, uh, when you get a chance, go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and you will find there an opportunity to uh, get your own uh, copy free of charge. Uh, of uh, Michael Morales' new book, Exodus Old and New. And while you're there at our website, entering to win a copy of this wonderful book, uh, you can also, if you'd like, make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to uh, provide content like this. And um, uh, so hope that you'll uh, take an opportunity to do that. It's been great uh, to uh, spend some time with you all today and look forward to uh, joining you once again uh, next week for the Mortification of Spin. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. You've been on before, Michael, so you know the score at freewheeling. If you say anything uh, that you wish you hadn't said, we'll edit <laughs> it from the program, but we'll keep it on file. In case we <laughs> That's right. There is a reason why some very high-profile pastors in the PCA never criticize us. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. have loved reading this. It's been really, really good. Yeah, well, pray for me. I'm so in the thick of numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so now with numbers, is what is this a part of a series? You know, is this yeah, a commentary or what's your... It's the Apollo's commentary series. Okay, good for you. you yeah. Listen, if you do for numbers what you've done for Leviticus, then we're going to be really impressed. You're so. making all the boring bits of the Bible interesting. <laughs> <laughs> We've all faced unprecedented challenges here of late, and the church has not been immune. Unable to gather, many have drifted away. 
Still others languish in churches that have forgotten the creeds and confessions that give clarity and focus to our faith. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a reformed awakening in today's church, and we need your help. To be salt and light in a dying world, we need a strong and committed church, equipped with the truth and ready to serve the gospel. Your prayers and financial gifts enable us to produce and deliver solid resources from trusted authors, teachers, and speakers in print, online, at our signature events, and on the air. You will make a difference for today and for eternity when you give online at alliancenet.org donate or call 1-800-488-1888.